0: That this morning we are taking uh, what is a pretty significant leap forward in terms of where we've been in this prophecy of Isaiah. Uh, last week, I think we ended in Isaiah chapter 11, and so that means we're skipping some 41 chapters uh, to get to where we are today. Now, I think you know me well enough at this point to realize that, that it hurts me to have to skip that much uh, in God's Word, but I've given myself five weeks to do this. Uh, And so, maybe uh, for all of our benefits, uh, we've got to press forward. Uh, And so, today we come to what is Isaiah's fourth servant song, uh, the final servant song, uh, and one that is very familiar to us. Uh, Again, beginning in chapter 52 and in verse 13, and we'll read through the end of chapter 53. Uh, Let's hear God's word Behold, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All weak-like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father God, as we come to what is holy ground, this your word to us here in Isaiah a, a familiar passage, a, a wonderful passage to us, but, but a passage that should make us pause every time we hear it. Well, we pray that, that in these moments you, you would give us clarity of mind, that you would help us to, to see the truth of what you have for us in these words. And most of all, we pray that we would see this servant, this servant who has suffered and died for his people. Hold before our eyes always, King Jesus. We ask these things in His name, Amen. Well, before we dive into the specifics of all of this before us this morning, uh, it's important once again uh, to try to get the historical context. This is historical context that we have rehearsed uh, week after week for the past three weeks. It's important to get it uh, before us once again. And I'm sure you feel like you have a pretty firm grip on it, and I'm sure you do. And so rather than going through every detail, I would simply remind you that Isaiah, as Isaiah is writing this prophecy to God's people, uh, they have lived in open rebellion, open sin against it, particularly the kings that, that are supposed to lead God's people. They have turned to their own way. You know, rather than following him, rather than listening to the words that, that he has spoken to them, don't be afraid. Don't go after foreign gods. They have turned to their own way, they have made their own plans, political alliances, self indulgence, that they have chosen to do things their way. And as a result, uh, judgment. Judgment in the form of Assyrian and later Babylonian exile, it's coming. And so for 39 chapters, 39, Isaiah lays out judgment. It's coming. Now certainly in the midst of all of that, and we've seen this over the last three weeks, he's given us hope, right? He's given us this sun that is soon to come, that will bring light into a dark world. He's given us the the promise of Emmanuel, God with us, the virgin birth, right? And then last week, he promised us a king. A king who would come and who would rule in righteousness and in equity, who would bring true justice into the world. And so throughout, it's sort of like looking up at the night sky. The, The background is bleak. It is dark. But all along the way, there's been these little points of light, uh, these points that have reminded us that there is hope. And then in chapter 40, that hope takes center stage, right? For 39 chapters, he declares judgment. And then in chapter 40, the whole tone changes. Rather than speaking to the people who have rebelled, God begins to speak to the people who will be in exile says, comfort. Comfort my people, O Israel. Isaiah, you speak to these people and you tell them that though they have sinned, though they have gone far from me, I, the, the promised covenant keeping God, I will not leave them. I will not abandon them even there. But I will bring them back. Bring them back. And friends, that is great news. And certainly it was great news to these Jewish exiles, to hear that God is with them in this, their lowest place. To hear that God had not abandoned them. What hope, what joy that must have given them. And let's be honest, we can't fault them. We can imagine that as they heard those words, they begin to wonder, what exactly will this deliverance be like? And and they had heard in Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 7 those promises of a Redeemer. And so they began to to build up this Redeemer in their mind, right? He's a king. And so they could imagine, they could see Him in all of His majesty and all of His glory coming to deliver them. They could see Emmanuel, God with His people. They could hear all the cheers, all the trumpets, all the joy of this Davidic king. if David and Solomon were the standard, you remember how great Solomon's kingdom eventually became before he fell into sin, if that's the standard, and this king is going to surpass that, then in their minds that, that we can't even possibly imagine what they must have been thinking. It's kind of like uh, that, that it's Christmas season. it's kind of like that, that Christmas gift that you really want and you consider all the, the awesome things that it can do and how great it will be to have it, and you have a long time to think about it, so you build it up and you build it up, and eventually it's the most amazing thing in the world, right? You've got to have this thing. Well, to some degree or another, it had to have been what Israel was doing during this time. They're suffering They're under foreign oppression. They're they're away from their land, away from their homes. They can't worship God the way he's prescribed because there is no temple. And so they're awaiting an amazing gift. And all along the way, they're building it up. They're building it up. And then they turn to Isaiah 52. Then they turn to these songs of the suffering servant... The amazing gift that they had anticipated, the the amazing gift that they had built up in their minds turns out, or it seems to turn out to be, sorry, socks. Or maybe it's an oven mitt, or maybe it's something that that is sort of seeming like, you know, it's not sort of disappointing, right? They wanted a king seems that that what God is sending them instead is a servant. You know that that gif or that gif or however you say that word where that guy's like, what? It's gotta be what they're doing, right? How? How is this helpful to us? Because notice, this is a servant who is first in this passage, he's lowly. He's lowly in every way. Verse two, it says that he will grow up before him, that is before God. As a young plant, as a dry root, how could one with earthly origins, one distinct from the Father himself, be that arm of the Lord that we read about in chapter 53 and in verse 1? How could one that is a dry root be the king? He's lowly in his origins. He's also lowly in his appearance. He's plain. He's normal. Maybe even one who is unseemly. How could that be? The, the king of kings. He, says he has no form. He has no majesty. No beauty that we should look at him. None of us should think that, that if we ha- had walked the streets of Jerusalem and passed Jesus that we would have said, Hey, that's the king. Because none of us would have done that. Here, you've got to turn me down. i None of us would have stopped and said, Hey, that's him. He, he had no appearance that we should see him. Uh, several years ago, this has actually been probably ten years ago, Ryan and I, uh, we went to a concert. It was a guitar player. Y'all probably never heard of him, but to us he was a pretty famous guy. And, and we, It was in Atlanta. We left real early. We got there real early and we were like on the second row and there was nobody there in the place when we got there. And it was just like the, the sound crew was there. And we're sitting there just like anticipating the whole thing. And this guy sticks his head out from behind the curtain. And Ryan's looking at me and I'm looking at him like, is that the guy? The guy that we came to see, is that him? He's just in normal street clothes. He's not ready for the show. And like, No, that's not him. And so we just sat there. I mean, we froze like a couple of just, I mean, we didn't do anything. It was him. We could have like shook his hand. We could have talked to him. Nothing. We just sat there. But he, he did not look the part here in Isaiah this this king this redeeming king he didn't look the part he's lowly in his origins he's lowly in his appearance notice also he's lowly in his life experience there will be no pomp and circumstance his life will be no leisurely stroll seemingly he will experience very little joy at all a man of sorrows Acquainted with grief, he will know struggles, he will know hardships and afflictions. It's a lowly existence. He's lowly in his demeanor, and that's maybe the most shocking of all, especially to these Jews who were in exile. They were expecting someone to come and to stand up for them, someone to say, no, you can't do this because these are my people. But notice in verse 7, Though men will oppress him, he will not open his mouth in return. He will not curse, he will not argue, he will not condemn or accuse. He won't even attempt to defend himself. Instead, he will be silent before his accusers. This one who is to be the king, this servant, he is meek, he is lowly. As one commentator says, the human eye saw a man among men of human ancestry with no special dignity, and as the object of scorn, he was left lacking in adherence. And so, our Jewish exiles, they read this and they ask, How could this be the one? How could this possibly be the Messiah? Well, if those verses were enough to lead them to that question, then, friends, I imagine that what comes next would have left no doubt in their minds at all. It would have caused them to say, hey, we're just going to try to ignore that part of what Isaiah says to us, because not only is he a lowly servant, but notice, secondly, that he is also a suffering servant. He won't just come from nothing. He won't just appear as nothing. He won't just be rejected will suffer almost unimaginably at the hands of this world. He'll be stricken and afflicted, verse 4. Pierced and crushed and wounded, verse 5. Oppressed, he will receive the judgments of men, unwarranted, but judgments no less, of verse 8. In short, he will be slaughtered, in verse 7. So terrible will his physical suffering be that back in 52 and in verse 14, Isaiah says of him, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. People will stand astonished at the extent of his physical suffering. We will turn away from it. You know, we've all experienced whether it's images of war or whether it's an athletic event and someone has a terrible injury and they show it over and over and over again and we're like, just stop showing it. We don't want to see it. Friends, this servant, he will appear that way. People will turn their eyes from him. His will be pain. His will be suffering, unimaginable. And notice, it extends beyond just the the merely physical, but it is also emotional. It is spiritual anguish. Emotionally, who is it that stands with this servant in his time of need? Clearly, the the people won't stand with him. In the passage, it says that that we have abandoned him, right? That's God's people, we He is utterly alone by himself. Emotional darkness. Notice it's a darkness that also extends to this servant's very soul spiritually. He is in anguish. Verse 9, it is a darkness that follows him even to the grave. Though he is innocent, he will be counted among the wicked. He will be locked in with the transgressors and I know I'm, I'm beating a dead horse here but friends, it's, it's worth remembering that this servant, his will be a life of unspeakable suffering and once again, our Jewish exiles ask how, how could this be the one again, at this point, they've got to just be turning away from it they've got to be saying, hey this is either a different person altogether We've missed something along the way, or or Isaiah just got it wrong. We're just going to have to not listen to this part of what he has said to us. They wanted the best, the best gift. It seems that what they got is the opposite of that. It seems that what they're going to get sucks. Friends, you know, uh, in my experience sometimes socks, uh, they are what you need. Now you didn't really want them and you didn't really realize it was what you need and you probably never would have asked for them to begin with, but receiving them particularly when they are patterned with great fish and lures and a Merry Christmas sign, uh, when they are those kind of socks, they change your perspective on everything, right? Your whole fashion sense changes to some degree or another your outlook on the world seems to change just a little bit. That may just be me and uh, Jeff Covington that feel that way about socks, but my point is is sometimes the, the gift that you didn't expect and the gift that you don't think you really need is really the gift that you need. Here in this passage, no truer words have ever been spoken. The exiles want a redeemer. They want someone to deliver them, and guess what? God is giving them... Just that. He's giving them one who will give them everything. Remember, when it got right down to it, what was the problem for Israel? What was the problem for the kings? Yes, they had gone their own way. Yes, they had made their own decisions. And it had gotten them in trouble all along the way. But ultimately, their greatest problem was not out there. The problem was right here, right? Sin in their hearts. Rebellion in their hearts and along the way there had been kings who who had done a good job of fixing the things out there you know Josiah is gonna come after this and he's gonna be a pretty good king he's gonna bring reform he's gonna lead the people back in the way that they should go but guess what happens to Josiah he dies in battle and guess what happens after he dies in battle everything goes back to the way that it was before just like it is in the book of Judges. Over and over and over again, the judges come and they redeem, but then the judges die. And the people just go back to their sinful ways. So yes, for these exiles, a king could come and he could deliver them, but guess what their problem would still be? They would still be enslaved to the sins of their heart. They would still be mired in rebellion. And so their need is for a different kind of king. Not just a Davidic king, but a redeeming Davidic king. And friends, notice that that's who this servant proves to be. Yes, he is lowly and he is suffering, but thirdly, he is the redeeming servant. And you see it in two ways. He brings redemption in relationship to the people themselves. This is a big word I'm going to throw at you, but it's okay, we're going to define it. This is expiation. Expiation is, is how do we deal with sin? How do we take away the sin in our lives? This Redeemer, he does it. He does it, another big word, vicariously. He does it by literally taking on the sins of someone else. He, he stands in their place. They could not possibly deal with their sin and rebellion themselves. They were hopeless in and of themselves. And so, this servant comes, and notice what he does. Though there is no violence in his mouth, no deceit in verse 9, he bears our griefs. He carries our sorrows. We have seen him stricken for our transgressions. He's pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. He is led to the slaughter. Why? Because we had gone astray. He makes the offering for the guilt himself so that his people in verse 11 might be righteous. So that he might bring us peace and healing in verse 5. Friends, in order to redeem, in order to truly be the king, he had to deal with the sin in the lives of his people. And so to separate that sin from them as far as the east is from the west, this servant would come vicariously. Vicarious substitutionary atonement. That's the, the big theological word. What it means is that Jesus stood in our place. He took our sin to the cross. All of my guilt, all of the guilt of these exiles, those who were his, he bore it. He stood in our place so that we might be redeemed. That's expiation. He dealt with sin once and for all. But not only is this a redemption of expiation, but it's also a redemption in the sight of God. This is a redemption of propitiation. Propitiation is another big word. And what that means is that you bear the wrath of God, right? You appease the God, whoever that God might be. In this case, this is the true God, the one living God. Again, I said it in my prayer, but this is true. This is sacred ground. Because this is a place where we read, and the world hates this idea that there is a God of wrath, a God who must be appeased in any way. They, They want and they like a God of love, and that's all that they want him to be. Well, Friends, that's fine that they can have that God of love, and that's all he is, but they can't have the God of the Bible And they also can't have a God who redeems. All of us want a God who is only loving when it's our sin that he's dealing with, right? We don't want justice when we have sinned against our neighbor. We don't want justice when we've sinned against God. We want him to take our sin and sweep it under the rug, right? We don't want him to deal with it. But if somebody sins against us if somebody sins against the world, these great horrors that we see in the world, what do our hearts cry out for then? Justice. We want somebody to come and to give those people what they deserve. That's right. The problem is, is we can't have it both ways. He can't be just here and not just with us. He's got to be both. Well, that puts us in a great predicament. It puts these folks in a great How is it that God could possibly see us and justify us? We need a redeemer. We need someone who can appease this wrath of God. And notice this servant in verse 4. He is smitten by who? By God. Verse 10. Who is it? Whose will is it to crush him? not man's. This is where C.S. Lewis gets it wrong, and rarely does C.S. Lewis ever get it wrong, but he gets it wrong here. In the line, the witch, and the wardrobe, who is it that kills Aslan? It's the white witch. It's Satan that kills him. That's not true. Who is it that crushes the Savior? It's the Father. The Father crushes him. The Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. Why did he do it? So that he could be both, as Paul says, just and the justifier of sinners. He, this servant, he bears the wrath our sins deserve so that God might look at us, might look at his people, count them righteous. He drinks the cup to the very last drop so that no longer will God's people be objects of wrath children, sons and daughters of the Most High. Friends, it's all because of this servant, this one who brings the greatest gift of all. And that is the gift that we celebrate at Christmas. This week, uh, Sarah Grace, uh, she's been sick <laughs> off and on all week again, so pray for us because she's You've been sick for like three weeks. Um, but we were talking about Christmas, and she was talking about gifts. And Renee, to her credit, she said, well, Sarah Grace, that, that's fine, but you remember. What is the greatest gift of all? And Sarah Grace said, it's Jesus. She knows the right Sunday school answers. But when I, I was just listening outside of the room. And those words that Renee said, the greatest gift of all, it has stuck with me all week. It has stuck with me as I've prepared for this sermon, because that's true. And as we see this passage here in Isaiah, especially in chapter 53, friends, we see the reality and the depths and the greatness of this gift. Our Savior, our God loved us so much that he sent his son so that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's a son born in a lowly estate, in a cattle stall. He is a baby who grew up like a young plant with no majesty or form that we should look at him. He was mocked. He was rejected by men. But what does Peter say? He did not open his mouth at all, right? He didn't condemn. was humble. He was blameless before men, and yet they put him on a cross. He suffered and died. He was buried. His soul was in anguish. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did it so that we today might stand redeemed. Friends, this is the depths of of God's love for us. Who is this son? Who is this child? Who is this servant? I me now, it's Jesus. It is Jesus Christ, the son of Mary and the son of God. He is the king. No, he, he didn't fulfill the, the Jewish expectation. But look back at chapter 52 and in verse 13, and this is where we'll try to bring this thing to a close. Isaiah begins this prophecy, he really begins it on on a positive note, right? He says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. Yes, it pleased the Father to crush him. But the Father was also pleased with the work of his servant. And so, in the end, he exalts him. He gives him, as you read in your bulletin, the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is indeed Lord. Verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. This is um, uh, priestly imagery, right? You remember in the old covenant, they would kill the sacrifice and the priest would stand and he would sprinkle the blood over the people. It was a picture of their cleansing. Well, here, this servant, he does that to the nations. If you turn to Revelation chapter 5 and in verse 9, or 7 verse 9, or chapter 10 and verse 11, or chapter 14 and verse 6, who is it that bows before King Jesus? It is every tongue, tribe, and nation. They have been redeemed under this servant. He has cleansed them from their unrighteousness. Finally, in 53 and in verse 1, who has believed that what we have heard? In whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Over in 55 and in verse 12, 53 and verse 12, it says that he will bring victory, that he will divide the spoils among his people. Think about Ephesians 1. In him we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. In Ephesians 4, Paul actually uses this same kind of imagery. Though it's from Psalms, it is the king dividing the spoils among his people. He's giving them out to all of those who belong to him. Friends, yes, Jesus is the suffering servant. But through the resurrection, through the the, the good, uh, through the love of his father, He is also the exalted king. He is our exalted king. We won't sing it today, though we should, but I would remind you of those great lyrics in the great hymn, Man of Sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And then he goes on to say, Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Where is he? Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Friends, we are gathered. If you know God today, if you are resting in Jesus, he is your exalted king. And we are here today, as every Sunday we are here, as our whole lives should be, to bow before him and worship this one who has so lifted up, this one who has done and given us everything. Don't let the truth of what Christmas is pass you by. This is it. He came in a lowly place and he died for sinners so that we might re-redeem. There is no other way. He is exalted at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider this one before us, Lord, we do bow and worship him and adore him for the things that he has done for us. Lord, we can't even begin to to say how thankful we are. Our sinful hearts cannot even begin to to grasp even a, a small portion of the truth of what we have just read. We are so numb to it. We we are so used to it. We've heard it a thousand times that it rolls off our tongues and we read it and we skim right over it. Or may it never be. He is the man of sorrows. He is the suffering servant. He who knew all glory, eternal glory with the Father of sin and obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's done it on our behalf. He's done it for sinners like me, sinners like these gathered today. So Lord, may we never take it for granted. May we always bow and worship this one whom you have exalted, this one whom you have lifted on high. Where well, we look forward to that day where he will return, where we will be with him for all of eternity, where the nations will come to him and bow before them. Whether they want to or not, they will bow in his presence and they will confess that, yes, he is indeed Lord. I cry out to you. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Until then, help us to live as your people in a lost and dying world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn uh, is hymn number 213.